on this episode of Comedy Rewind. Is Notting Hill more than a retread of Four Weddings and a Funeral? How does this rom-com flip the script on the genre's typical formula? Why are there so many people reading newspapers in London? All of this and more on Comedy Rewind. 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 Push Rewind. I thought this was a comedy show. What's going on guys? Welcome back to Comedy Rewind. We are powered by Audio Technica and Manscaped as we rewatch the great comedies of the 1990s. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining me is nobody at this point. We have no guest officially. Uh, these things happen. Things got busy and they had to pull out. But I had rewatched the movie a few weeks ago, so I thought I had to do it while it was still fresh in my mind. And this is the last one of the year, so we got to get it done. And it's just going to be me, although we do have a surprise coming, uh, another voice on the show. There's two special surprises coming, actually. One's coming on social media in a week or so. The other is coming on this episode, and that is the guest appearance of my father, Ian Peck. Mr. Peck, retired newspaper editor and general manager, just happened to be visiting when I rewatched Notting Hill, and he just so happened to be visiting again when I sat down to record this. So I pulled him in for a few of the categories. Thought it'd be fun to bring him into the mix, see what he has to say about this movie. And that is a pre-recorded bit that's going to shove in a bit later. Uh, We are talking about Notting Hill. It's a 1999 rom-com. I may have mentioned it as a 1998 movie. I apologize for that, but we're doing things out of order here. I have to start with my personal memories of this movie. Uh, Kind of always, you know, knowing about it, seeing it on TV, but never sitting down to really watch it. And it turns out, as I rewatched it, I realized I'd never seen the whole thing. I thought I had. I definitely thought I had seen it, but I hadn't. And I think I kind of came in like halfway through where the paparazzi scene was happening because that was familiar to me. But the whole first half was completely new. So it was kind of cool to sit down with fresh eyes and see what it was like. Uh, And it is really good. Like I'm someone that is not a rom-com guy traditionally in the same way that as a kid, I would kind of cringe at the thought of pop music and Britney Spears and you know I was too cool for ABBA and my mum really embarrassed me dancing around to it but now that I'm older and I have I don't know if a broader taste more open mind I'm like yeah ABBA dancing queen mamma mia I can feel that I can recognize the bangers whatever shape and form they come in whether it's country music or hip-hop or whatever and I've opened my eyes in that aspect to rom-coms as well which is great because there's so many Good ones out there that I probably wrote off as mushy kind of melodramatic tripe and that's not the case here I think uh, we covered Four Weddings and a Funeral a couple of months ago with Salim and that was the first time I'd seen that movie as well and it's the same pairing here again Hugh Grant as the lead with uh, Richard Curtis as the writer and that combination that works so well through the 90s and early 2000s Uh, Hugh Grant claimed that this movie was based on real life and had loosely followed a friend of Richard's that fell in love with someone who was super famous and he wasn't allowed to mention in the interview. So I wonder if there's truth to that. Uh, But there are some similarities here and Richard Curtis has mentioned this as well that it's quite similar to his previous movie Four Weddings and a Funeral. You know, Hugh Grant falls in love with an American. She's kind of out of reach because she's moving back and forth. There's a bit more status difference in this movie where 
Hugh Grett's a normal person. Julia Roberts is playing a Hollywood star. So that adds a bit more of a wrinkle to it. And it's a bit more streamlined and polished, this film, compared to Four Weddings and A Funeral. It's got a bit more of that Hollywood aspect to it. Not just having a huge megastar like Julia Roberts, but it's just a bit more rounded around the edges, I think. And, you know, it, it was, a t- I think, timely movie for that pairing because Julia Roberts had had a lot of success kind of more early in the 90s, um, but had kind of faded a bit in relevance as far as being like a lead in rom-coms. Hugh Grant had had like his controversies with the law that we won't go into right now. So it was a bit of a bounce back for them and they have a really good chemistry, which which I enjoyed. Um, and we'll go straight into from there, the Rotten Tomatoes score. I would have guessed it being around 70%. It's 83 so I'll give myself um, a C plus for that guess. And I'll let you know that it was filmed for $42 million. I think Julia Roberts would have taken almost half of that just herself. But it made 364 mil at the box office. So great success. Uh, there was a cool review that I read from Observer that mentioned that it seemed to come out of nowhere to revitalize two stellar careers that seemed vulnerable not too long ago in this decade's cutthroat atmosphere in which a slight stumble or minor reversal can cause the most celebrated Jack and Jills to tumble down the hill to virtual oblivion. Great sentence, that. Uh, But that's, you know, going on from what I said before about Bounce Back movie for Julia and Hugh. And it's kind of interesting because that's similar to what happens in the film to her character, uh, Anna, I think is her name. And, you know, she has the scandal with all oh, the nude photos get leaked or whatever it might be. And that's um, that's running through, you know, true to life, I'm sure, for a lot of Hollywood actors that are hot one minute and then not the next. So the number one song when this movie released was TLC's No Scrubs. Great 90s tune. Uh, we'll go straight into What Have You Done For Me Lately. Hugh Grant... As my dad mentioned in his section of the the podcast, has been in a couple more like TV shows lately. I haven't seen him in a movie for a long time, but he's he was in The Undoing, which is a miniseries out this year, and I've heard a lot about that. I think I feel like Nicole Kidman's in that as well. I'm just gonna throw that out there without any fact checking. Uh, he was in a, a TV show a couple of years ago called A Very English Scandal, which sounds very English. And, oh, Paddington 2, which I'm yet to watch, but I've heard it's very good. So he's not, you know, gone, but he's not really in the limelight so much as he used to be. I feel like that um, Drew Barrymore movie, Music and Lyrics, was the last time I remember seeing him, like, you know, on a big poster and go watch the new Hugh Grant movie. And, And maybe that one didn't do so well, but he had a real hot streak between, obviously, Four Weddings and a Funeral through... This movie through Bridget Jones's diary about a boy, two weeks notice, love actually, another Bridget Jones movie, you know, doing all these, all these hits with Richard Curtis, and I feel like maybe they just need to be paired together every single time. Who else? So Julia Roberts also haven't really seen her as much lately. Uh, what has she done? She was in Smurfs, The Lost Village, as a voice. <laughs> um, not. Yeah, nothing really grabbing my attention in the last 10 years, I'd say. So, 
I don't know if that's choices she's made. Eat, Pray, Love is probably the last one that was on my radar. I haven't seen it, but I can only assume that that's been choices she's made rather than people not being a fan of her anymore because she is a great actress and she's got an Oscar to her name. That should give you like a lifetime supply of, of um, attention, I think, as far as casting goes. So hopefully she, she bounces back in some way soon. Uh, Richard McCabe is in this movie. I just wanted to mention him because he plays Colonel Collins in 1917, which was probably the best movie I saw at the cinema this year because there was only two because of COVID. It was 1917 and Tenet. But if you haven't seen 1917, go check that out. Reese, I think it's pronounced Ifans, is, uh, plays Spike, Hugh Grant's uh, stupid housemate in this movie. You might know him as the lizard in The Amazing Spider-Man. But he has also kind of continued working, but not really done anything that's going to make him more famous than he was just for this movie because it's a fantastic bit of comic relief in that role. The other Hugh, Hugh Bonneville, is another of uh, Hugh Grant's character's friends in this movie, and you probably know him from Downton Abbey, also in Paddington 2. I really need to see that. Misha Barton. I was a huge fan of the OC. So weird to see her in this movie as like a child, talking about Leonardo DiCaprio, but really cool um, and a great reminder that she exists because I haven't seen her in a movie I think ever like since the OC left I don't know if I've seen her in anything and looking at her IMDB page you know she's still working good on her um, she's still you know putting pumping out movies getting roles here and there but nothing that's on my radar at least maybe it's just me not being into that kind of movie but yeah I hope she does bounce back because she had you know a lot of talent as a youngster and um Looking at, you know, what she's known for on IMDb, we've got The Sixth Sense, Notting Hill, The O.C., and Lawn Dogs. And Lawn Dogs is a 1997 drama, so probably not going to move the needle for too many people, especially now, 30, uh, you know, 20 years later. Moving on to the categories. This is where I'll bring in my dad, so please welcome Mr. Ian Peck. Welcome to Comedy Rewind, Dad. Thanks, John. A.K.A. Ian Peck. <laughs> A man that has been told he looks like Hugh Grant by several people in his life. Not so much recently. Not recently. <laughs> you could say that's because he's not very famous anymore. He hasn't done that much lately. But He's a couple of years younger than me, but we're sort of both contemporaries. Yeah. <laughs> um, both had our heyday in the 90s. Probably. Yeah, right. So lucky for you, you were watching this movie. Oh, you were at my house when I had to watch this movie. So I could kind of pull you in for a little bit of this episode, but... I remember, like, obviously, when I was a kid, you spent, like, a month in England, or... In 1995, yeah. Yeah, uh, so six it, was weeks, only, it was only a couple of years before this movie came out. Did you go to Notting Hill? I did. Um, I stayed not far from Notting Hill, uh, around Marble Arch, and, um, yeah, did go to Notting Hill. I can't remember, you know, the markets and Portobello Road specifically, but actually mm. I went to a church there. At Notting Hill Gate, which is sort of next to Notting Hill, but yeah, in that area. So yeah, it sort of when I saw the movie a few years later, it was um, significant. Yeah, memories looked familiar. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Okay, is there anything about the suburb that makes it like, you know, that means anything? Like it doesn't mean anything to me. 
I guess it would be like if you called a movie New Jersey or something. I kind of have an idea of yeah. what like the vibe of that community is, but it's sort of that trendy kind of area, okay. I suppose, where people um, believe it's not far from the middle of London. What's the Melbourne equivalent? I guess like Brunswick or something. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the areas that weren't uh, maybe trendy. Um, 20, 30 years, well, this is 20 or 30 years ago, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, it, you know, they've become fashionable as younger people have moved in and the markets have attracted people and things yeah, like right. that. It's good to visit now. We went there last year uh, okay. as well when we were in England. It was, it was really, it's a great market street to walk down. Hmm. I guess the market. Pre-COVID. You yeah. see the market in the movie and stuff as well, Pretty don't much you? the same. Yeah, yeah, right. Cool. Okay, so... What is the most 90s moment of this movie? I've got a few things written here, so I don't feel like you have to offer any. But the, to start with, I thought the fact that he's running a bookshop is like a, a kind of setting that if you were doing that now, it would be like making a statement about the person a lot more than it would have been yeah. back then. Like you have to be a real hipster to be running a bookshop now. But he was just kind of a normal, It was, I guess it was meant to be a normal job back then. Yeah, it was pretty much. Um <laughs> A lot of people were still going to bookshops. I can remember when I was there in 95, I saw the, the internet for the first time at an internet cafe. Oh. So this is only a few years before the movie, and it yeah. obviously took off pretty quickly after that. But he he's, you know, the character in the movie is kind of a bit of a retro guy anyway, and into books, not into technology. So mm. there would be a whole sector of, of the community that would be like, it's probably still like that, actually. Travel books specifically seems yeah. like a pretty weird niche for <laughs> a bookshop. A, it's a very small niche. Yeah, I can't ever see him as being wealthy from selling <laughs> travel books. Yeah, and even people that come in looking for other books, it's like, no, we, we don't sell. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bit of a precursor to black books, maybe, which yeah, was yeah. a bit more out there. But yeah, and we did have Dylan Moran making his appearance in there too. Yeah, kind of kind of funny prophetic or something like yeah and there's, there's also a lot of newspapers in the movie i don't know if you noticed i I've, you've got a lot of insight yeah. into the community of england and i think when we we're watching it i joked about the fact that you wouldn't have these newspapers but you seem to think that still do london's a very hard copy newspaper kind of city right i think it's both but a lot of the papers have survived and they do some really good free newspapers like the quality of the um free newspapers is as good as some of our quality paid papers mm. here, I thought, when I was there recently. It's funny. And it's still a very yeah. vibrant um, news community. And it always has been. The newspapers have always been great. It's an education in themselves. But I think it's still a lot like that. Right. It's interesting because if, if you ask me to, like, talk about newspapers in England, I'm thinking of, like, the paparazzi, the trashy tabloids, and the, like, the, the, the stuff that we see online which is like you know obviously the digital version yeah. of these trashy things like this the sun and, mm. and like is it the sun which is the the sun and the mirror yeah the tabloids um the news of the world was one as well but of course we know that um that's folded mm. since the scandal about the phone tapping yeah you've got the times which is you know one of murdoch's as well but it's quality and mm. the independent which i think is still independent yeah but definitely stands okay. out watching it i think like how often someone's just reading a newspaper, just uh, I, I have to take your word for it that it still happens because you were just there. But I feel like if it was set in America or 
Australia even it would be people on their iPads or on their phones and it might just be that that's a very British thing more than it's a very 90s thing. I think it's still, like the commuter papers are prob- probably still popular would be my observation, but I think there's certainly a generation hmm. um, who don't read the papers who are consuming it online, but there's yeah. probably enough of a remnant of newspaper readers for them to still be viable as a print product there. Changing yeah. tact a bit, Mel Gibson's bottom, got a reference. <laughs> pretty 90s as yeah. well <laughs> I don't like if, think anybody would say that these no, days but no. if he's like your go to like sex symbol you know desirable human it has to be the 90s maybe yeah. the late 80s but if you talk about Mel Gibson now it's probably as like almost you know the way that people would have talked about uh, I don't know George Michael or someone that had been in like some disgraced position yeah. at, at the time of this movie <laughs> Because he's had so much controversy. Yeah, he's kind of a bit tainted, I suppose, yeah. in that regard, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Plus, Definitely. he's old now, too. Yeah, true. <laughs> I don't think the bottom would be held up, would have held up. <laughs> well, <laughs> gravity has its effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, blockbuster video yeah, card's yeah, got yeah. a shout out uh, when he's pretending to have. ID for was it as the as a as the press? Was I think it? he. Oh, no. Yeah, I think he showed his ID card. And yeah, I said, "Oh, it's a blockbuster yeah. card." Yeah. <laughs> That's a joke that just could completely go over some people's heads now. Like younger people, yeah. even people in their early twenties, they may have a very faint recollection of renting a movie mm. um, fifteen years ago when they were, you know, five to ten years old, but. Yeah, Blockbuster hasn't... I, don't, I think there's one or two or half a dozen left in USA. And as, a, as a novelty, perhaps. Yeah, and it's this thing that people, like, go on road trips to see it and they walk around and it's like it's yeah. like going into, like, um, a pioneer village or something. Yeah. And they so just go, oh, you know... Quick and they have, all the, they have all the new releases and stuff still. Um, and, yeah, it's... You know, they've got, like, the popcorn machine there. But people still buy DVDs, though, don't they? You see them in, like, EB Games yeah. and things like that. Yeah, sale, there's so no rental market because no. it's so easy to just go, oh... And cheaper to do it on yeah. a streaming platform. And you've got the the boxes, the vending machines that, oh, while you're walking out of Coles, there's a box, a red box or whatever yeah. it's called. And you can... I've used them a couple times <laughs> in the last four or five years, but okay. not for a while. It's... It is so much easier to just go iTunes. Maybe you pay like an extra dollar than you would um, well, otherwise, not, but it's so convenient. Really, we're not really, you know, up with technology in one sense, but I can't remember the last time I turned the DVD machine on, but sitting there for the DVD yeah. player really gets used in. Oh, I'd now. say it's you're like, pretty up with technology. You probably sh- use streaming services more than yeah. most people your age. Yeah. <laughs> You're handy probably, for a good probably watch, more, probably watch more TV than most people yeah. watch. Wait, wait till I'm your age. A lot of Most iconic scene. What do you think? Um, I think that one of the most memorable things is that, you know, that scene where she says, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy mm-hmm. asking him to love her. Uh, that's one of the, the scenes. I think the one that really impacts me about that movie is that, I guess it's, is it a lock you call it a, a montage, that season's mm. montage. It's walking through the market. Yeah, there and that Ain't No Sunshine soundtrack. Yeah. And that was one of the memorable things about the movie, I think. I'm sure it's been done before, but just it showed the change of t- the seasons and the mm. elapse of time in that one um, 
kind of cleverly done. Yeah, the scene in Portobello, right? The um, the effects for the time were pretty like it's pretty smooth. Like I think now they could probably pull it off in one shot, but they did have four scenes and stitch them together, yeah, yeah. all filmed on the same day. I looked it up, and oh, it's, okay. it's a cool, pretty cool scene. Um, yeah, well, he sort of disappears from time to time, so you know, and reemerges. Yeah. So I'm sure they could have done the cuts mm. or whatever. In but the first one you mentioned definitely is the one that gets quoted all the yeah. time. Is and that it makes reappearances in other movies? Yeah, as you well. see other people like ripping it off yeah. or taking the Mickey out of it, I guess. And the the other thing that I that stands out in the movie too, because it's a very London thing, is those garden scenes. You know, that when oh, they yeah. climb into. That park in... Um, That's like a gated community yeah, kind of thing. That was one of the things that stood out to me because I stayed in that area in 95 and you'd walk past these gated gardens and think, well, is that a public park? Mm. You obviously can't get in there. It's padlocked, but it's only for the residents who live around the park. And, um, yeah, I guess it's a quite a London mm. thing, a statement. Yeah, I'm guessing that all that stuff's still there in the yeah, same way. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, so some of the best scenes I thought, I don't know if you, if you call them the most iconic compared to like, like the, just the girl one is probably the number one, but the first time the paparazzi show up at his house and he opens the door (laughs) and it's just like, I don't know how he didn't hear them from behind the door, but there's just like a thousand people there. Yeah, that's right. That didn't quite make sense. (laughs) (laughs) You would definitely hear that many photographers and press people outside. Yeah. Flinty, it's like a, it's like, it's like a surprise party where they're just waiting for him to to open. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that was really. Um, it kind of captures like the idea of the movie, which is uh, it's the fish out of water thing. It's like why all these people at my house. He doesn't think it's a big deal. She is recognizing the significance of it instantly and instantly regrets everything that's happened up to that point. Yeah. yeah it's. T- I mean, it's unlikely. <laughs> to ever have happened in that way but it's a great um, I think it's the, the thing about the movie is it's these kind of preposterous sort of scenario but it plays mm. out really well and I think they did it very cleverly the director and, and it was well written and, and well acted I think they had just a, yeah. a good you know the right casting definitely there's a bit of a thread running through the movie we've already talked about newspapers and paparazzi and then you've got you know the press conference at the end of the movie yeah. when he's pretending to be the journalist and then the press junket which was the other one that I wanted to talk about where he shows up to meet he thinks uh, he's going uh, to see her at the, in the hotel and yeah. he finds himself in the middle of this parade of journos coming yeah, through yeah. and doing the <laughs> interview for the movie with all the cast so yeah. he has to pretend he's from horse yeah. and hound I think he did that really well that's actually. such a funny <laughs> scene because obviously he could have just said you know, the the logical thing would be to say, oh, I'm actually here to see them, to see her. She asked me to come here. <laughs> yeah. But he's, like, too embarrassed, so he just makes up this. And him having to ask all these actors questions about a movie he hasn't seen yeah, yeah. and relate it somehow to horses is just, like, it's hysterical. That was probably the funniest part of the movie It was. It, w- it was done well. It's kind of, you know, it sounds schmaltzy sort of really, but he pulls it off really well. And yeah. um, I think it's the whole self-effacing kind of bumbling British humour that it's Hugh Grant exactly does what so he well. Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think I read someone say something about he and Richard Curtis having this really 
good relationship yeah. um, in terms of understanding where you know each other were coming from. Curtis understanding Hugh Grant's abilities and Hugh Grant understanding what Richard Curtis, mm. the writer, was trying to get at. Yeah, occasionally you get those kinds of pairings in Hollywood of directors like Martin Scorsese loves using De Niro and Joe Pesci and, and those actors that he's had success yeah. with and Tarantino loves using Samuel L. Jackson and different people like that and you can see like when it works. I think um, Christian Bale's done a, a few movies with Christopher Nolan. Oh, yeah. uh, he'd like the prestige and then the Batman movies, obviously. So, yeah, it's it's good when you can find a pairing like that. Yeah, well, it works together well. I guess they've done others like Four Weddings and a few. Yeah, um, that was them and Bridget Jones's Diary yeah. and Love Actually. Yeah. They're all him. Like, <laughs> often when I think of Richard Curtis, I think of Rowan Atkinson mm. and, you know, that the TV comedy shows. pairing and, yeah, in the early days. But, yeah, they, the movies have been successful with Hugh Grant and mm. Richard Curtis. They might need to team up again. You reckon? Well, they might need to because I don't know what Hugh Grant's doing. Like, is I he, is saw he still him recently playing in one of those British pol- political um, period dramas, playing oh, yeah. a politician, uh, an elderly politician. Yeah, right. And he was made up to look quite old, like okay. older than he actually yeah. is. And I thought he did it really well. I can't remember what the show's called. I will have mentioned it on this podcast by now because I'm going to do what have, that, what have you done for me lately? So all the listeners will know what he's been doing by this okay. point. But anyway, right. um, what do you think from Notting Hill holds up the best? I th- I look, I don't... People like me don't probably normally like romantic movies, but Notting Hill's one movie that I don't mind watching, hmm. a, you know, every few years. It's actually something that I think the whole movie holds up well. Hmm. <clears throat> um, especially... Those scenes that you mentioned, the, the press stuff, you know, the press conferences and the interviews, and um, it kind of has almost a timeless, you know, sense to it. It doesn't date in in some ways, and I think you know people would still find it enjoyable watching it for the first time now. Yeah. Um, and as I said, I you know I certainly don't find it. I don't wince very much when I watch it. Like you do <laughs> yeah. some movies that you thought were great 20, 30 years ago, and now you just think. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's the 90, like there's the age of these movies that make, makes it hard sometimes, but also we're talking about rom-coms specifically. It's easy for them to be just super sappy and completely formulaic. And I, I this is the first time I'd watched this all the way through and it held up for me. Like it was definitely uh, a movie that, the writing really stands out and it feels authentic, even though it's this kind of ridiculous scenario of a, a celebrity that's hooking up with the average person. You kind of think, oh, it kind of works. Like it feels real. It feels like the way that he reacts to her, the way that he's, you know, he never says, he never tries to make a big deal out of who she is, but you can tell that he's like internally pinching himself and trying not yeah. to, you know, trying to play it cool. And I think that the tone of it works so well. And it's because she's kind of in that, you know, different world from him. It never really feels traditionally like a rom-com in that sense. Like it just feels 
it, it feels a bit more fresh than the the typical like you know they the, a, mo- a typical uh, rom com movie would be like this bit of flirtation at the start and then they hook up and that does happen yeah. and then usually one of them like betrays the other one's trust somehow and I, that that kind of still happens yeah. in this movie but it's flipped around where it's because she has this boyfriend that's a celebrity as well that you don't know about and it's usually the the gen- it's a bit of a gender swap where usually the guy screws up or he was like dating her to get information or he was dating her for a bet or some stupid yeah. thing. And then she has to forgive him at the end of the movie with some huge gesture and they flip it around where, you know, she comes back to him and has that iconic scene where she says, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy. Yeah. And that would usually be like the end of the movie, but then he goes, no. And then he has to have the realization that he's messed up and go after her. And I think, you know, if push comes to shove, it probably is following that formula, but it feels like they've turned enough of the things upside down and reversed that it, it, it's got a bit more of a fresh go at it. I think it's the quality of the acting, the cast, that actually makes it work, and mm. Hugh Grant is really good at doing this kind of stuff. It's his, it's him. Like, that's his yeah, it is. character. He basically plays the same yeah, thing in every that's movie. True. And if you look at Four Weddings and a Funeral, it's the same thing as well like if you were going to criticize it that's what you'd say like it's another movie where he falls in love with an american and she disappears and comes back it's the slightly bumbling but charming british you know self-effacing as we said before you know playing his own intelligence down or whatever Mm. and it it just works well for him because it is it's quite a ridiculous plot really but it actually yeah. works, you know, you find yourself... <laughs> I think you have... It also works because you put yourself in his place as well. You, you yeah. like just thinking, oh, well, what would happen if this did take place? And that, that dinner scene, uh, which is a really... Which is another memorable part of the mm. movie where where he brings her along and a couple of his family and friends recognise her and the others <laughs> just don't have any clue. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Hugh... Is it Hugh Bonneville... Um, he's quite well known now, um, plays the stockbroker in there because he's in Downton Abbey and all of these sorts of movies now. And I don't think I would have seen him in a movie or can't remember a movie I would have seen him in before this one. <clears throat> but those um, that dinner scene is actually quite iconic too, I think. Quite yeah, quite yeah, it, it is. Yeah, that, that scene was another one that could have been in that most iconic because that's kind of the first time you get to see the fun of, of this celebrity that doesn't belong in the situation she's in and then you get to see him in situations that he doesn't belong in so yeah. it's like not just one fish out of water they're both in unique situations and, and it's this um this girl who is in the wheelchair who's had the accident yeah. that he you know had been in love with um you know, but they've yeah. all been friends for a long time, and um, yeah, it's a weird situation. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it plays out really well. Yeah, yeah, and I think like compared to Four Weddings and a Funeral, this one, this movie feels a lot like more Hollywoodish because it does have that flash of Hollywood with Julia Roberts being there, and Hugh Grant's obviously a far more established actor by this point as well. Yeah, it's probably a bit more mainstream in a sense than yeah. Four Weddings and a Funeral, which yeah. is, it was more quirky, but this is more sort of acceptable across the board Yeah, to yeah. a broader audience, probably. The other thing that I wanted to mention for holding up the best was the, the child actor, um, played by Misha Barton, says that her favourite 
part of working on the, the film was working with Leonardo. Um, and he says Da Vinci. He says, no, yeah. DiCaprio. He, he doesn't know who Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio is, which is kind of, that kind of doesn't hold up because he's one of the biggest actors in the world now. But the fact that they picked a reference for someone that 22 years later would be like just as famous, if not more famous now, like compare that to, to compare that to like the Mel Gibson reference, like that could be filmed right now. She could say working with Leonardo and it would make as much yeah. sense for her to be that excited by it. He was more like a Justin Bieber kind of at yeah, that point. He was the heart from career. Yeah. Because yeah. I think 98, so he'd done Titanic um, and he'd done Romeo and Juliet. I, maybe by the time this came out, Titanic had happened, but I don't know if when they were filming it, it had been the big hit it was, but they would have known it was coming. Yeah, but he did grittier roles after that, like Black Diamond and things like that. Yeah, like. that was probably a good 10 years later. Yeah. But he, yeah, he did, like, it was The Man in the Iron Mask in 98, right. around the same time as yeah, this. that's right. And uh, he had already, like, he was a child actor for a bit before yeah. What's Even Gilbert Grape, and he, he's ne- never done a comedy Leonardo. Really? Yeah, he's 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 not one of those one for me, one for you kind of actors. It's always the one for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Kind of, yeah. It's like the actors that do, like, okay, I'm going to do a movie for me, you know, that means a lot to me because it's like an incredible story. And then I'm going to do one for them, which is like the the studio executives. It's a yeah, movie that's going to make... a professional actor rather than... Um... Yeah, he's not going to do a Marvel movie because it's going to make a billion dollars and it's going to make him more famous. He just wants to do movies that speak to okay. to him kind of thing. And that's yeah, why he's never done like a rom-com. Like he could have easily done, you know, a, a movie with, I don't know, pick, pick anyone like uh, Sandra Bullock in 2002 could have done a rom- rom-com and it would have made, you know, a couple of hundred million yeah. dollars. Um, but he never... He's, like, too good for any of that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm i not a massive fan, actually, of his. I know he's a great actor, yeah. and, I've, and I like some of the movies he's in, but... I feel like any time you watch a movie with him in it, you're going to have something to focus on, you know? But, like, I know that I'm going to get some kind of performance. Yeah. Oh, he's very good. What holds up the worst? Is there anything that stands out? Oh, um... Well, there were some things like you mentioned before, you know, if you've got a hundred photographers and paparazzi and media people out the front of your house, you're going to hear a noise out there. Yeah. So you shouldn't be surprised that, you know. Soundproof door. Yeah, and you don't go and open the door in your underwear anyway. Yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Without peeking I mean, out. Yeah, yeah. That guy playing, uh, what was his name? Um, you the, know, na- the, the, the long-haired flatmate. Oh, yeah. You, I uh, totally understand that he would have done that deliberately. But Spike, yeah. Spike, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. But, yeah. The, the one thing that I had was occasionally, like, the way that Julia Roberts' character was written. Like, obviously, Richard Curtis is a male, and he's writing from his own perspective. And it made me feel like she was the more, like, not poorly written character, but the one that was making stupid decisions and there was there wasn't any logic to some of the stuff she was doing like you know just just the the way that she disrespected Hugh Grant's character to kind of conveniently push the story along the way that she flipped out at him and the way that um 
she didn't have the guts to like break up with her terrible boyfriend it made her look really weak like she wasn't i guess she was putting her career ahead of you know her relationships but she she was kind of built up as this like really strong character prior to that and then it was all kind of taken away yeah. in some of those scenes yeah know? it was a bit weak in a couple of those areas and i agree it's more more written for hugh grant and um he's uh yeah, it seems to be the more natural role, in a sense, in the movie than than the character that yeah. she played. And it's, I think it's a pretty common thing for films written by males to just, you know, have the male be their like interpretation of you know I know how I think and I know the issues that I've had with relationships, and it's going to be from my perspective. Mm. So I'm probably going to be the one that's without fault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess, and it's, you know, that era when some of the female roles probably were starting to change or, or, or the way the writing mm. for female roles changed a lot after that, perhaps to stronger yeah. characters and things like that. Yeah, and I guess, it, it, like I did mention the, the gender reversal as far as the mm. cliches go, there was him trying to win her affection back. It was the other way around. So, I don't know maybe they did things well in some ways and not in other, but that's, you know, it's always hard to get the perfect balance, yeah. I suppose. But the movie works and it's, yeah. um, you know, you can forgive some of those things because yeah. it rolls along well and and uh, you feel like it's a fun mm. um, movie to watch, I think. Definitely, yeah. Useless trivia. I'm going to read some of this to you and then I'll let you go. Uh, the Park Bench that they used in the movie a couple of times, particularly like, you know, the garden scene that you mentioned, but then at the end, they're sitting there, she's pregnant, they're together. It now lives in Queen's Garden in Perth. Really? Yeah. After filming, it was purchased at an auction as a romantic gift for a relationship that failed. <laughs> and the uh, then a, a local Perth resident anonymously donated it to the city. And it's in a beautiful garden that's locked at night okay so it's i guess appropriate yeah so i guess perth also has these uh lockable these exclusive exclusive gardens. gardens um location manager for the movie described finding locations and getting permission to film as a mammoth task and they ended up having to write to thousands of people who lived in the area and promised to donate to each of their favorite charities so they ended up donating to 200 different charities yeah, because they filmed it in Portobello Road mm. rather than a, most of it, rather than a set. Yeah, and yeah. would have probably used the people who lived and worked there, did they? Is that what? Uh, well, not for that scene where it's transitioning through the seasons, right. but all the like shots on the street where you know she spills the coffee and all that kind of thing would have been in the neighbourhoods. And the house that he lives in used to be Richard Curtis's. Yeah, as well. I, I read that, and yeah. they actually auctioned that door off as well, the blue door. Mm, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder And they is. replaced it with another blue door. <laughs> but it, it, the inside of the house wasn't in the movie. It was completely different. Like mm. It's actually a very upmarket house. So if you'd actually okay. seen the inside of it, it would have been very luxurious, which it wasn't in the movie. Yeah, right. Cool. Well, I'll let you go, and I can take it from here. Thanks for your input. <laughs> Thanks your podcast me. debut. <laughs> yeah. Done well. <laughs> Here we go. 
and now it's probably a good time to talk to you about Manscaped, bringing you the very best in men's self-care, hygiene, and below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped products are now available in Australia and New Zealand. The good news for listeners is that you can experience Manscaped's life-changing products around the world with a handy 8-bit discount code. The Manscaped engineering team has redesigned the electric trimmer, perfecting the new and improved lawnmower 3.0 with a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce those grooming accidents. You got the USB-powered charging stand, you got the LED torch light, waterproof tech for easy grooming in the shower, battery life that lasts up to 90 minutes. Plenty of time, you know, no one's taken 90 minute showers, but if you wanted to, if you got that much body hair to deal with, it's gonna do you just fine. We know women prefer a clean look, men often do as well. The modern man wants to keep that body hair nice, neat and tidy. So for the right gear, get over to manscaped.com, get 20% off and free shipping. Use the code 8bit at manscaped.com. Maybe that's a good Christmas present for you people out there. Maybe if you're listening to this after Christmas, maybe it's a good New Year's present. I don't know. Do people give New Year's presents? Maybe they should. But hey, manscaped.com. All right, well, that was my dad. So I hope you enjoyed that. I hope the... uh, you know, sound quality was, wasn't too distracting. We did share a mic, but it's audio technica, so you know it's always gonna sound good. And we'll move on to does Notting Hill pass the internet relevancy test via memes and gifs? And I don't think it does. Nothing came to mind from what I remember seeing. I didn't do a search for what's out there. How would smartphones and social media change this movie? I think to start with, the fake names at the hotel, you know that's not going to be as much of an issue because you know he's got her phone number he could text her he could he'd be in those dms she'd be sending him photos telling him hurry up i'm waiting for you the name is bunny rubble or whatever it might be he wouldn't have to kind of guess mickey mouse and all these things uh he, he probably wouldn't even need to know her room number he could just like walk straight up uh the whole dramatic rushing to stop her from leaving thing, you know, that's kind of a trope for these kinds of movies and it's very dramatic. It's a great way to like create a climax in a movie, but it's hard to think smartphones and social media wouldn't make that, you know, communication a little bit easier. You're not going to have someone leaving without knowing that you've, you've got a, something to tell them, you know, unless there's an EMP that goes off and wipes out all the phone towers in London. Could you make this movie today? What would the 2020 version be? I think there's no reason you couldn't. There's nothing exceptionally unusual about this movie that means it wouldn't work now. Rom-coms are still a big thing. Um, maybe maybe it's not a Hollywood star. Maybe if you make it now, it's like a huge YouTuber or someone that's on Twitch and they have you know, endorsements and fans coming at them left, right and center. And uh, the person, uh, you know, they're they fall in love with isn't even a gamer Ooh, sh- crazy shenanigans how could that possibly work but hey that would be my 2020 version of this we'll move into the steve buscemi spark plug award steve buscemi a real spark plug reese iphons who i mentioned there's spike he is definitely the comic relief not that hugh grant's character isn't funny but he's always funny every time he's on the screen um he's probably in it a little bit too much though to be the spark plug you know he's threaded through the whole film uh shout out again to misha barton but alec baldwin is uncredited in this movie and he's he's pretty pretty good like uh, i'm a big alec baldwin fan like his performances are always pretty solid and he plays the kind of douchey 
uh, jockey, Hollywood star, really well. I guess it's it's not hard for him. It's not much of a stretch for him. He's probably been that person at certain points in his life, probably more than others, and probably tapped into that, I guess. <laughs> so I'm going to give it to Alec Baldwin. Go watch 30 Rock if you haven't. Last question, is this still a good movie? And yes, like I said, it's the first time I have watched it from start to finish. It held my attention. I enjoyed it. My dad enjoyed it. My mum was there. She enjoyed it. If Hannah hadn't been in bed, I'm sure she would have enjoyed it too because it's just like a feel-good, clever, good script, you know, funny lines and great performances and not too cliche. Like I mentioned before, it's, you know, there are some tropes in here, but it's not like completely predictable. So I think, yes, I'm going to give it a big tick as far as comedies go. And that's that's all we've got for this solo, half solo episode. Um, and, you know, it's the last one of 2020. We made it. We have a special surprise coming up for the next episode. So stay tuned to the social medias for that if you want to you know see what's coming up in the future of this podcast it's going to be something a bit different to what we've been doing so i think you will enjoy it and i promise it's not going to be me sitting here by myself talking to you like like this episode has been um but you know if you want to let us know what you think of the podcast you can jump onto your computer or phone and leave us a tasty little itunes or apple podcast or Podchase or whatever it is like a review or and a rating five stars is always good shout out to our patreon supporters that help make this happen if you want to support 8-bit get behind what we're doing here with our different podcasts you can do so over at patreon.com slash we are 8-bit that's a-t-a-b-i-t and you can catch me on socials at johnny himself if you want to be a guest on the podcast let me know because i'm always looking for for more voices that's pretty much all i have to say so have a great holiday season have a happy new year come back for more uh, comedy discussions in the future dear listeners and thank you once again for joining us on comedy rewind be kind <laughs>